Man, all right, all right, all right. Well, you guys good? Everybody excited to be here? Uh, where's your expectation level? Hi, hi. Uh, for all my online people, can we show some love to my online people? We love you. We're so happy uh, that you would join us uh, all the way from your home. You know what we found out this week is that there are life groups starting in different states on Sunday mornings where they're viewing our service. That's encouraging, all right? God, God is doing something here that is catching fire across the nation. Uh, and so if you're joining us online, man, we're so pumped that you're here. If you are watching this live and in person, man, it's good to see you, all right? Like, it, it's, it's not a competition, but I, I get excited about seeing people's eyeballs, okay? Maybe it, it's just me. Um, I, I want to start off with a question uh, today, and the question is simple. Do you believe that one word can change everything? Yeah? I, I, I believe that. I, I believe that one word from the mouth of God falling onto good soil in your heart can change everything. And, and, and that is the whole reason why we are creating a moment that we're calling Night of Revival that's happening February 20th. At 6 p.m., yes, it will be happening here in our South Campus, okay? So for all of our North Campus people, I know you probably rolled your eyes. I'm sorry, but look, you're going to want to be here anyways, okay? Make the drive. I haven't asked people to come back yet. I'm asking you to come back, okay? I'm asking you to be here because God is going to do something on February 20th, that is going to be foundational in your life and I believe in our church's life. And we're bringing in uh, one of our dear friends, a friend of this house, this guy named Kendall Laughlin, all right? And Kendall is a pastor at All People's Church in San Diego, California. He's gonna be with us for the entire weekend. And, and here's the deal. The reason why we're bringing in Kendall is because Kendall has a gift on his life to be able to stir faith in the hearts of people. How many of you need faith stirred in your soul? And so what we're doing on February 20th is we're saying, God, we need a fresh word. We need a word from heaven that is gonna come and bring strength and hope and life. And we believe that the encounters that are gonna be happening on that night are gonna be fuel for your life. So I want to encourage you. I want to admonish you. I'm going to go ahead and say, I'm telling you, be there. All right? We want everybody to be there. We're even doing kids stuff so that no one has an excuse not to be there. We're not charging you anything. It is free. The only reason we want you to register your kids is so we make sure we have enough volunteers. All right? And so, look, I need, I'm telling you, you want to be there. You need to be there. All right, I heard this phrase one time when I was in high school, and it has proven to be true. Man, if you show up, God does stuff. All right, and that being said, I know we're shooting a little far out right here, but man, we're doing an Easter celebration, extravaganza deluxe on Easter Sunday. We're, we're putting a tent in the stinking backyard so that no one has an excuse on why they can't show up, all right? And it's gonna be a dadgum party, so... Be there too. All right, here we go. Last week, 
we started a series of talks walking through the book of Nehemiah. How many of you were encouraged by what God revealed to us as we began to lean into his word for us? And the reason we're taking time uh, to do this is really twofold. Uh, one, very simply, is that we are in a season of rebuilding. Every human, organization, church, business, 2021 is a season of rebuilding. The book of Nehemiah is a book about how do we rebuild things that have become devastated and broken. And so we want to lean into the biblical truths that we find with that God gives a group of people that find themselves in a similar situation. Are you with me? The second reason why we want to lean into this book is because we want to be a church, hear me, that is filled with passionate, Jesus-loving, Bible-reading people. We want to be a church that understands what the Word of God says, not just understands what people say the Word of God says. We want you to be a Bible reader. And so our entire purpose on wanting to lean into this book is not to go verse by verse through everything that Nehemiah says, but to hopefully as we dive into these bigger themes that God reveals to us, that we pick up some tools to learn how to study the word of God on our own. Because look, the word of God has the answers to every situation where you feel like you don't. And when we understand the word of God, it eliminates our ability to try to manipulate what scripture says under our interpretation of what we feel like culture needs. And it forces us to understand that the word of God is transformational and therefore we become transformed into, into the likeness of Christ and in that we become what culture needs. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We want to be a church of Jesus-loving, Bible-reading people. And last week, we leaned into some of the context of what was happening historically and also what was going on in Nehemiah personally as he started to get word of the state or the brokenness or the devastation of the city of Jerusalem. And what he heard drove him to pray. When he was overwhelmed at the brokenness, his first move was to lean into intercession, getting the heart of God for the burden that he was feeling. Nehemiah was driven to pray, and we leaned into the prayer that Nehemiah prayed as he was getting clear at all that was broken in the city of God. And what we found is that there was a process or, or some keys that Nehemiah lined out for us in his prayer that are a roadmap, not just for cities to be restored, but for us to be restored. And we started calling those things like that they're keys to transformation, steps to restoration. And what they are are to repent of the sin that is in us. Step one to seeing restoration happen in you and through you is to repent of the sin that is in you. Step two, remember the promise that God has given you. Repent of the sin that's in you. Remember the promise that God has given you. And step three, trust where God has put you. 
that these things coming alive in us will lead to restoration happening in us and happening through us. As we did that, we we stumbled upon a principle in studying the word of God that we're gonna keep coming back to again and again and again. And that is that the Bible is not a series of stories. The Bible is one story. The Bible is telling one story. The Bible is not telling a bunch of different stories. And we call that the meta narrative of scripture. Again, the strength of understanding that God is telling one story from Genesis to Revelation and not a bunch of different stories from Genesis to Revelation is that it not only builds within us a theological foundation that will have what it needs to stand in the pressure of culture, it also creates for us a safety net from the temptation to shift what the Bible says into what we want it to say. Because you can't manipulate a scripture into what you want it to be if it doesn't line up to the big story that God is telling. So this principle of studying the word of God, understanding that God is telling one story, not a series of stories from Genesis to Revelation, strengthen us. And it also allows some of these Old Testament moments to come alive to us. Last week, what we begin to see is that God would then use individuals and people to do more and to say more than just the practical places that we find them within the story. For instance, you have Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer to the king of Persia, and this was symbolic, we found, of Jesus being the cupbearer to the Father who was willing to drink the wrath of God on our behalf so that he could offer us a cup of grace. And we are able to see that when we look through the lens that God is telling one story of salvation, redemption, and restoration from Genesis to Revelation, that these practical moments that happened historically are bigger pictures for us prophetically. If you're still with me, say amen. Amen. Now, what I want to do is fast forward a little bit from where we were last week to get us to where we're really going to land this week. And without us reading all of these different chapters, this is the overarching view of what began to happen after Nehemiah prayed the prayer that we ended with, ended with last week, which was this amazing kind of process of seeing restoration happen in us personally and through us corporately. What began to happen is God opened a door for Nehemiah to share his burden with the king. Now hear me, if God is on you, he always makes room for you. If God is on you, he always makes room for you. So if God is on you and you're tempted to make room for yourself, check your timing. Because if God is on you, God makes room for you. God made room for Nehemiah to take what was burdening him and present it to the king of Persia who had the resources to do what Nehemiah knew needed to be done. In that moment, God showed favor to Nehemiah, not just by allowing him to share how he was broken, but then telling the king that he needed to fund Nehemiah's mission. 
So Nehemiah goes to the king, says, look, I'm, yeah, I'm torn up. The, the city of my people has been devastated. The walls have been burned down. And, and I, I, I feel like I have to do something about it. The king says, look, go rebuild the city and you can use all of my resources to do it. How many of you know that when God tells you to build something, he gives you what you need to build it? Now, we start to see some progression happen where the people of God start to begin to clean up the mess of their brokenness and begin to start restoring the walls that have been broken. And as they begin to move forward, how many of you know when you take some steps towards restoration, there is always opposition. And Nehemiah 2 verse 10 says this, after they had started rebuilding and things started to happen, it says that when Symbalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I want you to write this down. Remember, it's biblical to be a note taker. Revelation 21.5. <laughs> Restoration always creates opposition. Restoration always creates opposition. It is important that we understand that some of the chaos that we're feeling today, the division that we are encountering in our culture is from hell trying to stop restoration from happening. The enemy does not want the glory of God ruling in our hearts and in our minds. The enemy does not want the glory of God ruling our lives and then affecting our city. He wants to keep what is broken, broken. And Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem began to pick up the pieces of what had been devastated. And it seemed that the harder that they worked to rebuild the city, to restore God's glory and bring salvation and protection for the people of God, the harder the enemies worked to stop them from completing what they were doing. And throughout the next few chapters, these men, Sambalat and Tobiah, as well as this other guy named Geshem, did everything that they could to oppose the reconstruction of what was broken. Now, again, looking through the lens of the meta narrative of Scripture, just like Nehemiah became symbolic of who Jesus is to us, these guys are also symbolic of the enemies that will oppose us. Ephesians 2, Paul is explaining to us what it looks like for us to live fully alive to who God has called us to be and the things that will rise up in us to try to rob those things from happening in us. And he says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgression and sin. Okay, what he's saying is before you knew Jesus, you were dead because of your sinful nature. That sinful nature we call our flesh. This is our brokenness, our deprived state. This is the, the hard wiring of corruption that is in us because of the sins of those who have come before us. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? 
And when we live apart from God's grace and the forgiveness of who he has allowed us to receive and be through walking in relationship with him, we are entering into operating out of our flesh. And your flesh will fight against restoration and transformation happening in your spirit. He goes on to say, in which you used to live. You used to live that way. That's how you used to live. Before you met Jesus, you lived in your flesh. And he says, when you followed the ways of the world, I want you to write down the word flesh. I want you to write down the word world. You follow the ways of the world. Look, there are ways that the world does things and they are opposite to the way that God does things. The world says, you do something to me, I'm gonna do everything I can to bring you down. God says, you do something to me, I'm gonna allow you to do it again. There is a way the world does things and operates, and there's a way that the kingdom of heaven operates and does things, and they fight in opposition to one another. They do not run parallel to one another. Paul says that our flesh will keep us from living full in God, that the world will distract us from living full in God. And then he goes on and he says, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, right now, he's speaking of the devil, the spirit, he says, who is now at work for those who are disobedient. So you have the world, you have the flesh, and you have the devil operating in opposition to your life being fully restored into all that God has called it to be. And what we see in Nehemiah is that we have three men opposing the people of God, representing these three very things. Sanballat, let's just call him San for now. Can we call him San? All right, that's all I want to give him credit for is just San. Okay, listen to who this joker was. This guy was the governor of Samaria, which was a region that was just north of Judea where Jerusalem was located, and he wanted to rule over everything. He wanted to rule over things that were not rightfully his. He wanted to begin reigning over a place that was designed to be a place where God and God alone only reigns. If you're a Bible reader, this becomes to sound very, very familiar because the devil got his start as the devil when he tried to take the place of God in heaven. He wanted the worship that God was getting in heaven. He started as an angel and he wanted to receive what was not rightfully his. And so instead of trusting where he was put, he started to rebel against where God had placed him and wanted to reign over things that were not given to him. And the punishment for that was that he was then expelled from heaven and now he rules in hell. San for us in this story represents the devil. He wanted to rule over what was rightfully God's, even though he had no business doing that. Then we run into Tobiah, and he says that we're just going to call him Toe. Okay? So we got San, he's the devil. We got Toe, Toe is our flesh. Here's why Toe was an enemy that arose from within. Wow. Toe was related 
to the Israelites. He was one of them, yet his motivation was to destroy them. Toe represents the old man, our flesh, our sinful nature that although arises from within us, seeks to destroy us. Then we have Geshem. Geshem, we're just going to call him Gee. We got Sam, we got Toe, we got Gee. Gee represents the world. Do you know this is the only man mentioned in the Bible that is from Arab descent? That is not by accident because he represents that there is a way of God and there is a way of the world. And we see the conflict of that very thing playing out in the news every single day. The things that rise up in opposition to restoration happening in us and through us is the world, the flesh, And the devil, Ephesians 6, Paul would then go on to tell us in verse 12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I know I'm I'm hitting you with a lot today, but if you're tracking with what I'm, the picture I'm trying to paint on this canvas, say amen. amen. Nehemiah 4 says this, when San... Can we just roll with that? Uh, When San heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed and he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then here you go. Here's Toe showing up. Toe the Ammonite. He was at his side and he says, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. Listen, do you want to know how the enemy begins to oppose you when restoration begins to happen in you? He insults you. Tell me if this sounds familiar in 2021. Insults are flying around. It's almost become the way that we communicate to one another is to talk about what's wrong with everybody. Can we begin to see that there are more things at play than what we can see? That there is a struggle that is happening that is bigger than just the things that culture is labeling. Because the enemy will always come and bring insults to you and at you because his goal is to pressure you and create so much pain from the things that are being said about you that you will give up on what he's called you to build. So your life is to see the kingdom of heaven restored here on earth. And so look, if you stand for righteousness in any way, shape, or form, you will be insulted. If you say that the intention of God was that marriage would be between a man and a woman, you will be insulted. Things will be said about you. Things will be made up about you. 
Attacks will come from every side that you can imagine. And regardless of your intention, regardless of the care of your desire for people to feel loved, it doesn't matter because when you stand for restoration, the enemy always insults you. It's the first card that he plays. It's the first thing that he does. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What Jesus is saying here is that if those things are happening to you, it's because restoration is happening in you. Insults will come. The devil always leads with insulting what is changing or who the change is happening in or through because he wants what's broken to stay broken. So if he can create enough pressure, enough social pressure, enough, uh, enough division between those who you thought were with you because of what they're saying about you, that you will give up on holding on to the restoration that you're called to, then he has won. So don't be surprised when you become insulted. Don't be surprised when you get persecuted because if it's happening, it's proof that restoration and transformation is also happening. So be encouraged. Fire is great. If the enemy comes with insults and falsehood to put pressure on us, but it doesn't stop us from working towards the restoration that God has called us to and what he has called us to believe for, then he will begin to try to divide us from the people that are rebuilding with us. Don't miss this. If the insults don't work, he will begin to try to divide us from the people that are called to rebuild with us. Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, man, we have sons and daughters. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. How come you have something to eat and we don't have something to eat? This is not equal. Does this sound familiar? Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain for the famine. Other people are saying, solve your own problems. Quit whining about it. Still others were saying, we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And although we have the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to be subjected to our sons and our daughters being enslaved. It goes on to say that some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Hear me. The enemy wants to weaponize what you're feeling into fuel for division happening through you. This is big. This is really, really big for us and our culture and the state of Christendom today in our country and in our city, shoot, within our own church. The enemy wants to weaponize what we're feeling into fuel for division happening through us. Now hear me, this does not mean that if you feel something strongly 
that you've been deceived and it's from hell. That's not what this means. But what this does mean is that hell wants to use it to create chaos and division. No other time that I can even recall in history. You have pastors and Christians and church leaders name calling publicly and privately because of how they perceive responses to this pandemic should be happening. So you have pastors calling other pastors and churches cowards for the way that they're responding. And then you have other pastors and other Christians calling other people reckless for the way that they're responding. In the hour that our city needs us to be unified, can you see how the devil wants to try to weaponize what you're feeling for fuel to divide us instead of unite us? This is all of us, man. The devil wants to divide us from within to create little groups of people that start talking about different groups of people from within us so that division can happen through us. Because when we're divided, we can't work towards the mission. A house divided what? Cannot stand. So it's interesting that the one who tries to come and divide the people is one of them, Tobiah, who was supposed to represent who God was to the people, yet he started representing what he thought should happen for the people. And listen, all of us here in prophesy in part, and you might be able to give me 20 scriptures and 800 prophetic words about why this should be done this way and this should be said this way and everything we're losing because we're not doing this and all that God is not doing because you responded this way. Stop! The enemy is weaponizing your thoughts to divide us, not unite us. Man, if we could get that fired up about preaching the gospel and reaching our neighborhood versus what you think why well, should or shouldn't be doing when I'm in church. My God, we might have revival, but the enemy will always try to divide us by weaponizing us so that we can't work together so we can't stand to see what we're called to do. The enemy wants to divide us from within. We need to wake up to it, church. We need to wake up to it. Our city needs us to be united. You know what Jesus tells us? John 13, 35. This is how we should look. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Is it really that simple? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually think it is. I actually really think it is. So if you're doing something that doesn't look like love, can I go ahead and say this? In love, stop. You're not helping. Understand who you might be fighting because your fight is not against flesh and blood. Your fight is in the spirit world. 
The enemy always comes with insults. He always comes to try to divide, and then he works relentlessly to distract. How the world, the flesh, and the devil manifests itself in robbing us from restoration is insults, it's division, and it's distraction. Nehemiah 6 verse 1 says this, when the word came to sand, toe, and ghee, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Isn't that cool? They did it. In the face of opposition and name calling and, and, and attacks from within, they did it. There's starting to be, it's, there's no gaps left, but the doors and the gates hadn't been built yet. They were still vulnerable. They weren't where they were but they weren't fully called, they weren't fully who they were called to be. It says this, that San and Guy sent a message. Come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Even the name of the plain tells you, Ono! Oh, I wish that it was that clear for me. If someone's coming, they're like, they were like, hey, dude, you want to meet me here? Where? Oh, no. No. I'm good. But listen, they were scheming to harm me, Nehemiah says. So I sent a message to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and I can't go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And four times they sent the same message and each time I gave the same answers. Listen, if insults don't stop you and division doesn't break you, the enemy will try to distract you. Not all opportunity is the right opportunity. Not all opportunity is the right opportunity. Nehemiah responded, I'm carrying on a great project. I can't go down. Why should I stop working and leave what I'm doing? How did he come to that? Proverbs 3, verse 6, in all of your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Sometimes opportunities will come at us. They look good, yet they don't feel peaceful. And it's because maybe that opportunity has is, is been put in front of you to distract you from where you're called to be. Not all opportunity is good opportunity. The enemies of the people of God were doing everything that they could to stop Jerusalem from becoming a place that was filled with the glory of God. He was insulting them. He was dividing them. He was trying to distract them. But what I want you to see is that the book of Nehemiah does not just show us the plans of the enemy. We also see the plan of God for victory. And in the midst of everything that rises up in opposition to restoration and transformation happening in us, I want you to listen to how Nehemiah responds to what is going on. It says, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Nehemiah is like, okay, thank you, enemy. You have reminded me we're not just on a construction site, we're on a battlefield. I think we need to wake up to the fact that we are in a battlefield right now. 
that there is a battle that is waging for the souls of men and women in our city. And we need to understand that we need to equip ourselves for battle. The officers were posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who were carrying materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other hand. Ooh, I love that. A hammer, a blueprint in one hand, a Bible in the other. You feel me? Each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the man who surrounded the trumpet stayed with me. They fought for each other. You want to know how you make it against the opposition of the enemy to see restoration happen in you and through you. We begin to fight for one another and we stop fighting each other. We begin to fight for one another. We, we begin to pr protect each other. They, they didn't allow the threat of what might be coming to stop the work from happening. They persevered. They, they, the, the, the sword that they would carry is a picture of the word of God. So, 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 so they, they, they were holding the truth that was so sharp that it divides bone and marrow. And they started building not just with the guide for how to shape the wall, but, but they started building with the truth of the word of God that gives them strength. The promises that God has spoken to us will hold us. Are you hearing me? When it feels like the world is coming against you, we need to hold on to the word, the sword because this will slay our enemy. Not your words, his words. Last week we spent our time, our entire time, leaning into a prayer that Nehemiah prayed. And this week I wanna end our time by leaning into another prayer that Nehemiah prayed. Hear me, restoration and transformation does not come easy. It's hard. It's hard to see change. It's hard to fight the world. It's hard to fight the devil. It's hard to fight the flesh. It's hard to stand up against insults of hell. It's, it's hard to work through the complexity of the divisions that we might be feeling. It's hard to navigate through the distractions that are popping up all around us. And Nehemiah feeling all of these things that we feel as we are fighting our own battles. He sees these things that are happening, coming at us, happening around us. And he prays this prayer. Nehemiah 6 verse 9, they, speaking of their enemies, are all trying to frighten us, thinking, listen to this, their hands will get too weak for the work. And it will not be completed. But listen, but I prayed. Now strengthen my hands. Now strengthen my, you, you want to know how to defeat the plans of the enemy that are attacking restoration happening in you, in your family, and in our city? You need to pray, God, strengthen my hands, that my hands do not get too weak, that my grip does not get too tested, 
that when I find myself standing against insult, trying to bring unity in the midst of division, trying to decipher distraction from direction, God, strengthen my hands. God, make my hands strong enough to keep pressing on. God, make my hands strong enough to to, to be able to keep standing up, to keep believing, to keep hoping. Uh, God, strengthen my hands to hold on to what you've given me to hold, to build what you've given me to build. Yeah, we got to have strong hands to hold on to the promises that God has given us, the promises he's given you for your kids. Some of you need to hear that, that, that your hands feel a little weak from holding on to the promise that he's given for your kids, you might need to join with Nehemiah and pray, God, strengthen my hands. That that, that we would have strong enough hands to hold on to the promises that he's given us for our parents. That, That we'd have strong enough hands to hold on to the promises that he's given us for our marriage. To give us strong hands that we would be able to hold on to the truth of the word of God in the midst of the deception of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah, the enemy is trying to test our grip, but Jesus is here to strengthen our hands. Listen to me. Hell will always come with insults. Hell will always come with division. He will always come with distraction, but heaven comes with truth. Heaven comes with strength. Heaven comes with grace. Heaven comes with with power. Heaven comes with restoration. Heaven comes with healing. Heaven comes with joy. Yeah, the enemy wants to try to insult us. He wants to try to wear us down. He wants to try to get us to give up and give in. But Jesus is here to strengthen our hands, to hold on to what he's called us to do, to keep believing for what he's called us to believe for and to not be distracted by what the enemy is doing. Because listen, here's the promise. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. I want you to stand to your feet. And if you need your hands to be strengthened today, if you need your hands to be strengthened, to hold on to the promise, if you feel weary from the insult, the division, the distraction, if you feel weary from the onslaught that the enemy is throwing at you, I want you to raise your hands in the air and just begin to declare, God, strengthen my